Good morning, everyone. Welcome. So I'm officially 35. And no, 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 it's not my birthday. Um, gotcha there. Uh, I uh, got up at 5 a.m. this morning and put a pork shoulder on the smoker on Super Bowl Sunday. So I think that's the affirmation. I'm officially now 35. 35-year-old 35 male in America. But there is currently a pork shoulder smoking at my house that I am not attending to right now. And so yes, it's Super Bowl Sunday. So glad you guys are here and you didn't use the excuse. Well, I've got to make my guacamole for eight hours. So many people do that. Oh, I've got to prep. It's hours from now. What's going on? But you're here. Hopefully you enjoy the game and your festivities and you're really into it. That's great. If you're just there for the chip dip, you're great too. And I hope you enjoy your day. We don't have time for trivialities, though. We've got to jump right into it. There's a lot here. Revelation chapter 6. Let's turn there this morning. If you need a Bible, one of the ushers will pass one to you. We're going to be doing a healthy amount of reading this morning. Last week in the park, I talked about how John entered the throne room of God, and he witnessed the enthronement of Jesus alongside God as he was found worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and be the executor of God's plans of redemption through human history. They're going to bring about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Now, having taken the scroll from God's hand, it's now time to proceed with the events that lead to the consummation of all human history. And I know that's a hard right turn from pork shoulders of Super Bowl to the consummation of all human history. But that's the purpose of church. That's why church is so important. That's why it's so important that you're in this setting right now, getting into these conversations, because where else are you going to spend time thinking about the consummation of all human history and what's going to be important in those days? So, Yes, we're here. I know we've had quite a lot of symbolism up to this point, but we're going to get into even more. We're in a section called Cosmic Battles, that we're calling Cosmic Battles this week and for three more weeks. And this is the most heavy laden symbolic area where there's cloaked metaphors. And you're going, man, I thought we were already in that. He's been saying that for weeks, but, but I know. Maybe I lost you four weeks ago. It's, it's even more now at this point. All right? I told you. The early letters, it's the honeymoon period for us. This is the stuff of marriage that we're going to get through right here. And, and really what we find is there's these uh, sequential judgments that are going to play out. We've got seven seals this week that we're going to talk about. We've got seven trumpets after that, seven bowls. Now, a question for the reader is, is this a neat chronological series of events? We're going to go from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls. You know, some people believe it does operate in order like that through human history. But personally, I believe John is being given different impressions or portraits of how the end is going to play out that all complement each other as we get a total picture of our redemption. Sort of like when Jesus is teaching on salvation and grace. He tells three different stories to tell the same story. He talks about a lost coin and a lost sheep and a prodigal son. Each one of those portraits paint a different dimension of the same picture. It's like a classical symphony. A symphony, you know, is this lengthy musical composition. It's got different sections and movements, but it has a unifying theme throughout the midst of it. You know, that's the book of Revelation. Though most of you probably don't listen to classical symphonies. Think of like Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen or something. You know, like it's got it's got different stories within the story, but it's a unified whole. Bohemian Rhapsody is weird. I'm not trying to say the book of Revelation is like Bohemian Rhapsody in that sense, but but the, the, the larger narrative being spelled out through these different narratives. So these visions were given to John and to us as these different impressions of how our redemption is going to be achieved. Now, even if you disagree with the interpretive approach that I take, 
there's going to be a lot of areas of agreement in the meaning of some of the details. And certainly, for the application as we step back and consider, what are we called to do as believers in light of what's being conveyed in this book? So we'll get to that agreement by the end. Let's read here, though. The seals. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We'll read 6, 7, and a little bit of 8. It'll be on the screens. I watched, John says, as the Lamb, that is Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals, that is from the scroll that has the plans of redemption that are going to lead to the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So I watched as Jesus opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens were seated like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Follow us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land of the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. 
And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. Then he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbles, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So it concludes the seven seals of the book of Revelation. Seven seals in total, with the first four seals representing a distinct series of effects upon the world from the last three. Those first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as many people would refer to them, who seem to ride together. You have number one, the rider of conquest, seen in the rider with the crown. This is an angelic being who's released upon the earth to stir up this pursuit and exercise its tyrannical power. A lot of people will link this rider to the Antichrist. He's, you know, on the white horse like Jesus would be like, he's an alternate Christ. The, that rules in God's place, leading God's people astray potentially. And, and yes, maybe it's the Antichrist, maybe it's representative of the Antichrists, but it's that tyrannical power, that drive for conquest through government, religion, economics, I would say all of it. Two, we have an angelic being that removes peace. And in that vacuum of peace, there is murder on the earth. This is the writer who holds a sword. Number three, we have the writer that represents famine. He's got the scales in his hand. They would use scales to measure out food in a time of scarcity. And there's these denominations of money that are being given for denominations of food, right? And this number that they're charging, it's four times, 12 times, depending on what research you do, four times to 12 times the normal amount because food gets more expensive when there's less of it. The luxuries aren't touched. So this is a, a disaster that's going to impact the poor more specifically, four times, 12 times, and some of you guys are thinking, this is like the California housing market right now, are we in this right now? And then number four, right, we have this angelic writer who is bringing death. He brings all the writers together in a sort of unholy unity. Through conquest, conflict, and natural disasters, there is going to be pain and death. These four angelic beings, they emerge from the throne of God in Revelation. It's Jesus who opens the seals. It's the living creatures who worship God who call them forth. And they're each given implements of war and battle and they're representative of the plagues that they're sending. Presumably, they're given those implements by God himself. 
after being called forth, are each indiscriminately set upon the world, affecting both Christians and non-Christians alike. In the vision, a lot of people are impacted by them. And guess what? A lot aren't. To a certain degree, you and I might be more familiar with the activities of the four horsemen if we were born in a different place in this world or at a different time in history. And that certainly contributes to the feeling of randomness and chaos of it all. But this is anything but random what's taking place, and it isn't the first time we're warned about these forces and tribulations preceding the end times. It's in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is with his disciples, and they ask Jesus, they say, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the culmination of the age? What's going to occur? How do we know? What's the sign? And Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and deceive many. This is like the writer of conquest, right? <laughs> Seeking to lead people astray through conquest. He says, you will hear of wars. And rumors of wars, like the writer of conflict. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, the writer of famine, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. These events, these writers and their impact on the world, are birth pains, the beginning of birth pains, pains that we've been in for thousands of years, pains that the early church was themselves experiencing. And the pains of childbirth and contractions, what do they do as you get closer to birth? They get closer together. They get stronger. And if we look at world history, have the powerful ever been more powerful? You know? <laughs> if you look at war and killing, has there ever been more killing in the last hundred years? The 20th century, bloodiest century in human history. 230 million people, they estimate, were killed in global conflicts. So this concept that's out there in the world of progress, of a, of a civilized, ordered society that's just going to get stronger and stronger and more peaceful as we get more developments in science and in government, that whole idea of progress is absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Right now, China has just doubled its nuclear warheads. And it's set to triple what it has right now over the next couple of years. What's going on? Are we trying to break the record of bloodiest century from the 20th century to the 21st? Is that what's going on? No, I think that we're just unchanged. Things change in the world, but human beings are not progressing apart from Jesus. We have the same sin. We're like wicked children, except the tools of destruction in our hands are even stronger. So we still see the impact of these writers, and we still see the impact on natural disasters. We have famines that befall the poor caused by droughts and global catastrophes. COVID-19 really struck Africa very, very hard. The poor that are there are hungrier than ever. They have less food and less wages than ever. We couldn't buy eggs, and we're like, oh no, I gotta go to three stores. No. That's not famine. That's not famine in the way that it's being experienced by others around the world even now. And the death toll of the latest earthquake in Turkey and Syria is now 10 times that of those who perished in the Twin Towers. With an estimated 5.3 million people who have been made homeless overnight in just the last couple of days. 
Now, what can be so concerning for the modern reader is that Jesus is complicit with this. Nay, he is actually the one instigating the birth pains of Revelation. Like, when you induce labor in someone, you pump them full of Pitocin, so you, you sort of like, you know, mimic what the body would do, like kick the body into the mode to bring about childbirth, and it's like, Jesus is breaking open the seals. He's unleashing these forces. He's instigating these birth pains. Now, why would he possibly do that? You know, first I want to remind us of the message within the message to early believers that may be missed on us. Recall with me the early Christians who were receiving revelation first. They were undergoing severe persecution and marginalization by the Roman Empire with its imperial cult and all the forced idolatry and worship of foreign gods being pushed upon them. And the local synagogues are ratting them out to the authorities. And there's all these false influences that are coming in and dividing God's people from within. We see this all in the letters that Jesus gave to the churches. And then you've even got the heroes from among their communities, those who are the leaders being executed in public. Those early believers would be asking, where is God? Where is God in the midst of all of this chaos? So the message within the message that John is writing to demonstrate is that God is above it all. He is sovereign and powerful even over the bad things. It's all unfolding within the bounds of his plans. So also everything today is unfolding within the bounds of his plans and power. And that's why it's all the disaster casting of Matthew chapter 24. If you listen, right? He goes nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, all this death. There's one application he gives his disciples. He says all this stuff is going to happen before I return. All this stuff is going to happen before the culmination of the age. What's the one thing that the disciples need to do amidst all of it? He says, so be careful that you are not disturbed. So be careful that you are not alarmed. What is he telling them? He's saying, remember, remember that I'm sovereign over even the bad things. I mean, this is what we needed to remember in 2020. This is what we need to remember in 2021, 2023, 2024. All this stuff he told us was going to happen. And he told us we have the ability to not be alarmed in the midst of it. Because we know that he's powerful even over it. But the natural question that I think we all feel is, well, how can I calm down? <laughs> what purpose could there possibly be in these disasters being unleashed in the world? And this idea that God is even sovereign over that. What comfort is that? How can I calm down? You know, no doubt there is a mystery in it. And how it all works together. Jesus hints at that mystery in that same passage I read. Matthew chapter 24, he says, So be careful that you are not alarmed by these things. Such things must happen. He says such things must happen. This is the way it has to go. And we wonder why does it have to go this way? And he doesn't give us the answer to that. He just tells us this is the way it has to go. You know, you, you don't get birth without birth pains. There is no redemption that's coming. There is no salvation that's coming without the trials that preceded. So we don't know how it all works together. But we do know through Revelation and the Bible in general that God redeems the context of trials and sufferings for our spiritual transformation. We do know what God is going to do in the midst of it. Suffering refines and purifies Christians 
even as it melts away everything and everyone else. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, we have the resurrection awaiting us. We know that God is on the throne. Jesus is enthroned with Him. He's alive. So we have a hope right now that is alive. This inheritance is kept for us. This inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, which is being referenced here in the book of Revelation. In all this, you greatly rejoice. We can sing songs about it. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, the greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the trials, the sufferings that are permitted to happen are the refiner's fire, Peter says. All these materials are mixed together when you're refining metals. And, and some are valuable and some are less valuable. When you heat them up, they have different boiling points. So they'll melt away. And you melt away the impurities, and you're left with what is precious. For the believer, we have all these false attachments to the world. We have false beliefs. We have sin. We have false pride. And through suffering and trials, all of that is melted away from us, and we're left with just the preciousness of our soul. While for the unbeliever, there's nothing left after the fire after the trial. You know, it's really this simple. If your hope is in the world, when it all comes crashing down, what are you left with? What happens to your hope? It sinks. If your hope is in the world, and it all comes crashing down, where is your hope? It disappears. If your hope is in heaven, and it all comes crashing down, where does your hope go? It's strengthened. It's stronger through trials and suffering you long for. You're hungry for redemption even more. So we are strengthened. The trials and sufferings of this world, both released and permitted to happen by God, are the context of revealing and purifying hearts. Now that does not make life any easier. That's why Jesus calls the road through this world like carrying a cross. That's why Peter acknowledges, yes, you're shielded by the power of God, but he says, right now, you're going through suffering that is causing you grief. So also consider the fifth seal. It is the voices of the martyrs and saints who died in the context of the suffering, who cry out from beneath God's altar for judgment, having had their own blood offered as a sacrifice to him. Verse 10, they say, how long? How long is this going to go on? You know, and they're crying out to God. They call upon God. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true? They're calling God out by who they know Him to be. How long, God, you are sovereign. You are over even the bad things. And we know you're not the bad things because you're holy. You're other. And we know you're true. So when are you going to act? So when are you going to bring vindication? When are you going to bring justice? When are you going to make all this right? And that's the feeling that we have right in the world. You see the earthquakes, you see the famines, you see the disasters going on, nations, the conspiracies, and we're all crying out, how long? You're over this, and you're holy and true, and we believe that, 
When is the justice going to happen? And Jesus doesn't act in response to their pleas. Instead, he gives them white robes, the sign of those purified by the Lamb, the sign of God's people all throughout the book of Revelation. They're told to wait a little longer until more have joined their protest and plea. Wait. The waiting is hard, right? The waiting is hard. We're impatient. My kids, impatient. You know, they did great. They did great in the car ride to the nine states. When we did that tour during the summer, they were absolutely fantastic. But for some reason, they could not handle two and a half hours in the car to Santa Barbara this week for camping. They just could not handle it. And we're 20 minutes into the ride, and they asked me, how long? When are we going to get there? We're going to get there in two hours and 10 minutes. And then five minutes later, they asked me, how long until we're going to get there? And I say, two hours and five minutes. And they say, five minutes? My son is a genius when it comes to math. My son is the most brilliant mathematician. He just took the gate test. He's going to pass it with flying colors. But when he's in a car and we're on a trip, his IQ becomes zero. I didn't tell him that, but I walked him through it. I said, five minutes ago, it was two hours and 10 minutes. If you subtract the five, it's two hours and five minutes. I said, two hours and, how could you think it's five minutes? Because a child, the world, the view, the perspective is this small. Somehow they think maybe two hours and five minutes has already passed in five minutes. Maybe we're there right now. When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And when you think about our perspective in comparison to God, we are that small in our perspective. And so because we're experiencing this world from our limited perspective, we're thinking, why not now? Act now. Do it now. And he says, wait. Wait. You know, human history always waits on God's actions to move forward and he has his own reasons in it Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 later in that same discourse about the signs of the end of the age he says the gospel is going to be preached in the whole world and then the end is going to come and he says here in Revelation 6 you've got to wait until the full number have lived and died for me human history moving forward isn't waiting on a nation to act human history moving forward is not waiting for the next news headline and then it can occur Jesus holds the scroll right now, and he knows when history ought to proceed forward. My Christian brothers and sisters, let God own human history. He knows what he is doing. The scroll is in his hand. You know, it drives me a little wild that there are pastors who will read the book of Revelation, and it's like they know the plan of human history. It's almost like they're giving God a rough draft. Like, God, you could interpret your own book this way, to kind of move things forward so that you can act now and all these things can play out with your plan of redemption. And he's like, I've got it. This whole thing is going to move forward at the right time based on my perspective, based on something that you don't have access to. Let's let God own human history. And John sees God do just that in verse 12. As the sixth seal is finally opened. There's an earthquake in heaven, but more stunning are the cosmic effects, the sun turning dark, the moon blood red. You know, the stars fall from the sky 
the heavens are receded like a scroll, and then the islands and the mountains are removed. And it says, all the earth dwellers, whether they be kings or princes or generals or the rich or even slaves, the poor, they all cry out in fear at God for the great day of His wrath has come, and who can withstand it? I personally interpret this, given the degree of the effect and the calamity and the wording assigned to it. This is a picture of the final judgment, the day of the Lord, prophesied in places like Joel chapter 2. It reads, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. It befalls all the peoples of the earth at the opening of the sixth seal. But then why do we jump to this picture of the 144,000 in chapter 7? You know, why do we, why do we move there? It, well, let me explain what's going on in the flow of Revelation here. In chapter 7, verse 1, we have a change of scene. John says, after this vision, I looked and I saw. So he's seeing something to say. I, I've got to lay it out for you because I know when I was reading this aloud, and we got to chapter 7, and I'm like listening to the tribe, and going, I don't know how he's going to do this. How are we going to get through this today? Like, There's a lot of stuff. So let, let me lay out what's going on here, because this is like an, an, an aside in the narrative. You've got what he saw, the six seals being opened up, and this destruction coming upon the earth, and the fifth seal, believers crying out, when are you going to avenge us? When are you going to bring justice? And the sixth seal is open, and that judgment begins to be enacted, and and the people of earth are, you know, responding to the wrath of God and they're in fear. But we've got this other group that needs to be highlighted in the narrative, this aside, this picture of those who are faithful and who so are going to receive a reward. And what John sees is God holding back the initial four horsemen of destruction sent out into the whole world to the four winds. How do we know it's the four horsemen that are being held back? Because... There are four chariots of horses prophesied of in the book of Zechariah that correspond with these four horsemen in some ways. And they have two different names. They're, they're the chariots and they're the horsemen, but they're also called the spirits or the winds of God. So before, those first four horsemen are unleashed on the whole world. There's this group of believers who are foresealed for their protection. Now, again, I want to remind you, this isn't a protection that is like physical bulletproof armor that they're going to have so they're unaffected by the sufferings and trials of the world. We know that wasn't true of the early church. As Peter mentioned, we're shielded by the power of God amidst the current sufferings and griefs that we experience. That's a spiritual protection. It means we're not going to lose heart. We're not going to lose faith. We're going to continue on in our hope and be marked by him through those trials. We're, we're, we're sealed, presumably in the same way that all believers are sealed, they were sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, through faith in Jesus. And there are 144,000, John sees, who received this mark from among the Israelites, 12,000 in each of the 12 tribes of Israel, thus 144,000. If you passed your gate testing, you knew that. Who are these 144,000? Some see this as a literal number of Jews who will come to believe in Jesus. Some see this as a number of really exceptional saints who lived through a period of even stronger tribulations and trials. Jehovah's Witnesses taught this was the literal number of those who would go to heaven until their membership became 144,001, and then they edited their prophecy, which is a sure sign of false teaching. I see this as a vision, as a picture of the whole true people of God, the true spiritual Israel. 
which is what we are called, Jew and Gentile alike who will believe in Jesus. There are 12 tribes, John sees, all the tribes. And there are 12,000, 12 being all the people of all the tribes, times 1,000, meaning there's a lot of them. So it's this picture of the whole complete people of God, no one missing being there. So I think the next verse, verse 9, continues with the 144,000, meaning there's a multitude now that John sees, the full spiritual Israel in Jesus, that 144,000, it's a symbolic picture that represents that number that no one can count, people from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the Lord dressed in white with palm branches as the Jews would have in the festival of tabernacles, of booths, which would commemorate God's provision in their wilderness wandering when they were moving toward the promised land. The elder asks John, who are these? And he says, well, you know. And the elder responds, they are those who've gone through the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And now they enjoy the benefits of heaven in that song, cited again in more detail at the end of the book of Revelation. A heaven that is diametrically opposed to the effect of the four riders upon the world. So here in chapter 7 are God's people contrasted with those on earth who fear the activities of God. They've remained faithful to God, protected as they were with the seal of the Holy Spirit amidst the trials and sufferings. They've gone through this wilderness journey. That's what we're on. That's what we're, we're in a wilderness walk. We're not in the promised land yet, but one day we'll be joining with them, holding the palm branches in the promised land that is the kingdom of God, that is heaven. Coming back to the seventh and final seal, which concludes it all, John is brought to see it opened by Jesus in chapter 8, verse 1. And silence for half an hour falls over heaven. This increases the drama and the finality of everything that's being accomplished. And after the silence, an angel approaches the altar with a censer and this bowl of incense filled with the prayers of God's people. And that's offered on the altar and lit on fire and it's like, now's the time. God is going to answer the prayers of his people, the cries from beneath the altar of bring your justice, bring your redemption. God is going to answer those prayers. And so the angel takes fire from the altar and casts it upon the earth in final judgment. And so goes the end, and so begins the beginning. Now I've presented to you one valid interpretation of these chapters among many, and I won't claim to be the one person, the sole person who seems to know, but these are the impressions God places upon me as I consider the impressions He placed upon John. Now I want to reflect on some questions and thoughts based on this passage that I think you'll find are relevant for all of us, whether you take a different interpretive path for the book of Revelation or not. It's not those who understand perfectly the book of Revelation who are wearing the white robes. It's those who through faith in Jesus have washed their robes white. They're the ones who received the promise. So we're all okay. Let's think about this here. Some questions for you to reflect on. I usually have principles, but I want you to think about this. I want you to be challenged by some things from chapter 6 through 8. Number one, do you find purpose, God's purpose, in your trials? Do you find God's purpose in your trials? God had a purpose in releasing and allowing the sufferings and trials upon the earth. He has a purpose in our trials. They are the birth pains that precede our being reborn into the fullness of the kingdom of God. Just as there was purpose in the suffering of Jesus, though it was hard to see at the time, so there is purpose 
in our trials and suffering. Do you see it? In everything that we go through, everything in life is always training for heaven. Trials and suffering help us to release our attachment to the world and increase our thirst and our hunger for heaven. That's what they do if we go through them with faith. They either produce the friction that makes us shine or the friction that breaks us down. And it's really about how we relate to them. It's really about our faith response. You know, there are people I know who get dragged, dragged from one blessing in life to another. They're blessed. And they're blessed and they're blessed and they're blessed. And it's like they're dragged through the experience. And I know people who leap. I know people who soar from experience of suffering to experience of suffering, and they emanate the glory of God. How are you going to move through the tribulations, the troubles that I believe are already here? Do you see God's purpose in your trials? Are you facing them with faith? Along with that, number two, do you long for the hope of heaven? You know, some of you have not had your share of tragedy nor persecution or trial. And you are so comfortable and you're so insulated, you may not even long for revelation to occur. You know, everything that we read about here is just very odd and off-putting for you. And you even hear about the cries of the fifth seal of those who've been martyred, who died, who are crying out for vengeance, and God did enact justice and to act upon the earth. And you're like, whoa, that's like really uncomfortable. They're taking it a little bit too far. How can they cry out that way? And it's because your hope is still maybe in large part connected to this world. My concern is really strong for my peers, my peer generation and those who are younger than me, who have immersed themselves in digital trivialities. My concern is for my peers, and those younger than me especially, who have concerned themselves and immersed themselves in digital trivialities. Here we are, we live in the high walls of our American fortress, safe from war safe from famine, and we have the best treatments for any plague that would happen. So we don't know the experience of communist religious oppression that's going on right now. We don't know what it is to be one of a billion people right now who's living in extreme poverty. You know, we don't know what it is to live in a lawless criminal state. Those are not the experiences that we have. We are removed from the pain of others, so we just want this world to keep on going like it is. And because we don't think about the hundreds of thousands of people in Eastern Europe right now who are dying for a stupid war, and instead we're concerning ourselves with the placement of the chair in the living room and the designer shoes and getting some new tires for our truck, because all we care about are insignificant things, we can't be brought to care about the things of God. We don't see the value of Revelation. We don't see the value of the Bible. My generation, those younger than me, they've been trained to care about insignificant things, so the Bible doesn't have any relevance to them. But it's not the Bible that's irrelevant. It's they who are irrelevant. They're living the high life, and they're not living life at all. It's a giant escapist experiment that's failing. You know, I was watching LeBron, get the whole time scoring, you know, record. He broke it, and I watched it. I was watching it, and it was a great shot that he broke it with, fantastic shot. And it was a great accomplishment. Wow, it's more points than I scored. <laughs> and then the commercial break, Nike plays an ad, and it's got gospel music behind it, and there's a preacher that's preaching, and it's LeBron putting a ball through a basket. 
And then it finishes with this tagline, we are all witnesses. The same word that's used of us as we speak to Jesus. And you know, it's not offensive to me. I'm not this guy, oh, I can't handle this. Oh, turn off the TV. It's not offensive so much as it's trivial. It's sad. Do you hope for heaven? Do you long for the vindication of God's people from the sufferings of this world? Do you long for evil to be judged and done away with? Do you want more than this world? I sure hope so. You know, Revelation tests where our hopes lie. If your hope is in this world, then I ask, do you share in the seal of the Spirit? It is only those who have the seal who will inherit more. Only those who love the Word and the name of Jesus, who have faith in Him, who are given the gift of not being alarmed no matter what times come, because they're kept safe, shielded. You know, there are two responses to the face of Jesus in the opening of these seals, worship and fear. For those who wear the white robe, they join in the worship of all of creation. For those who merely dwell upon the earth and their hope is in it, when the Lord arrives, they cry out to be hidden under the rocks. Everyone will see the face of Jesus one day, every single person. What will your reaction be? What will you feel? And the disasters are going to play out in this world and in your life with or without faith. But why not experience the shielding power of God to keep you until your redemption? That's the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, by which you too can be marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit. So do you see God's purpose in your trials? Do you hope and long for heaven? Are you sealed with the Spirit? Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we consider these weighty chapters.